Welcome to today's episode of Delta, where we dive into the intricate world of intellectual property and innovation. Joining us, a distinguished guest, Peter Fasse, a seasoned patent attorney from the renowned law firm Fish & Richardson. Peter's expertise lies at the intersection of law and cutting-edge technology. He has dedicated his career to guiding clients through the complex landscape of patent prosecution, specializing in a myriad of fields including biotechnology, healthcare, medical devices, and an array of green technologies. His proficiency extends to assisting a diverse range of clients, from ambitious startups to established multinationals, in crafting competitive global patent strategies and building robust, defensible patent portfolios. Peter is a principal at Fish and Richardson, a global leader in intellectual property law. This firm, established in 1878, is renowned for their comprehensive services in litigation, prosecution, post-grant review proceedings, and counseling for patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. Fish has more than 400 attorneys and technology specialists across the US, Europe, and China. This episode is brought to you by MeshAI. MeshAI is a scheduling software for healthcare workers, including medical students, residents, physicians, and nurses. It alleviates administrative burden by leveraging AI algorithms for scheduling shifts. MeshAI automates the creation of equitable schedules, efficiently assigns the most suitable staff for each shift, and facilitate easy shift training among healthcare professionals. MeshAI is more than just a scheduling tool. It's specifically designed to cater to the unique training requirements each residency program. By integrating advanced features, it not only manages the schedules, but also supports the specialized training needs of healthcare professionals, ensuring that the training needs of each residency program are met. Peter, I'm so happy to have you here today. Well, I'm very happy to be here and happy that you're taking the time to speak with me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. Uh, I went through your previous uh, work and achievements, and you work with lots of clients in the health tech industry. And like, I'm so privileged to have you here and learn from you. So let's start. Um, what is a patent? Can we define patent? Like, why are they important? Why should care about them as health tech founder? Well, a, a patent is basically a document, and in this case from the United States Patent and Trademark Office, that defines a particular invention uh, by the sentences at the end, which are called the claims, and that gives the patent owner a right to exclude others from carrying out those inventions. There's a common misconception that a patent gives you a right to carry out your invention, but that's not the case. It's really just a right to exclude others. So that's... At a very high level, that's that's what a patent is. All right. And um, so which type of patents usually you see most health tech startup founders uh, apply to or they want to work through? Well, there are a number of different kinds of patents. There are uh, utility patents, which is mm-hmm. kind of the primary patent that is issued by the patent office, and that's what gives you the right to exclude. And I think it's like 94% of patents, something like that, are utility patents. There are design patents, which cover just the ornamental aspects of an invention. And that is used sometimes for certain uh, ornamental aspects of, let's say, a medical device. Uh, There's only about 5 or 6% of patents are in that category. And there are plant patents. Uh, which are rarely used, uh, certainly by me. I've done only one or two, but uh, that's about 0.2% of all patents. And uh, one other type of patent, which is not something that's actually a patent, it's called a provisional patent application. And it's often what we file for startups and our academic clients because it, it does not start the clock on the patent term, which is 20 years, from the filing date of the utility application, but it kind of is a stake in the sand and it protects rights if you then 
change that provisional or use it as the basis of a utility patent application, you have mm -hmm. one year from the filing date of the provisional application. One of the things that people uh, like about provisionals is that they believe that they're going to be a lot less expensive uh, to prepare. And certainly some of our clients file what's called a, a cover sheet provisional, where you just are taking a manuscript and you file it and you say that's our provisional application. Um, the filing fees are much lower. It's on the order of $250 or about half of that for small entities, which are, are companies that have fewer than 500 employees. So pretty much all startups are gonna be in that category. And they use the provisional cover sheet as a way to, as a placeholder, but we warn against that uh, across the board, not only for academics, but for all clients, because usually a cover sheet does not include any claims that define the invention. So it's, it's hard to determine inventorship properly. And the, the real reason to file provisionals in my view is to protect foreign rights because in the US, let's say there's a publication, you, you have a one year grace period in which to file a US utility application or, or a provisional. But in many foreign countries, there is no such grace period. And so you're filing as soon as you can to make sure that that is before you somehow publish your invention to the world. Because once you publish in a lot of foreign countries, there is no longer a chance to, to get any kind of patent protection. The flip side of that is that the, the provisional that is not done in a very robust fashion uh, often doesn't have a level of detail that's required to support the claims that ultimately issue. And foreign patent offices, for example, the European Patent Office, the Japanese Patent Office, they're very strict in terms of having literal support for all of your claims. And it, the provisional often lacks that. And in those situations, you may not get the date of the provisional that you were hoping for. And then your publication becomes a reference, a prior art reference that an examiner can use to reject all of your claims. So we always encourage our clients to file as robust a provisional as, as we can with essentially the same details, and the same level of detail that we would put into a utility application. But again, the, the, the benefit of the provisional is that it does not start the 20 year clock on the lifetime of the patent. And especially in the area of pharmaceuticals uh, where the vast majority of the income, uh, if any, is in the last years because it takes so long to get regulatory approval that last year can be worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of protection. Gotcha, gotcha. So there are many types of patents and like, and it looks like now we're gonna to touch base on the cost and like, I'm surprised, I, I heard the word $250 it costs, but like in my mind, always like patents cost around like $200,000 or like somewhere around that number. Um, so maybe we can, break down like the cost depending on like the patent type and like how much work does it take from your end and what do you expect your client to do? Like that would be very insightful. Sure. I, I was just mentioning the filing fee itself. Uh, for okay. the provisional. <laughs> uh, a filing fee for a utility application is on the order of $2,000 for a large entity and under a under a thousand dollars for a small entity, and then there's also a fee for the so-called micro entity, which is half of that again of the small entity fee. But in general, it takes so much attorney time to make sure that all of the requirements of a, establishing micro entity status that we generally don't use that for most of our clients uh, because the attorney time costs more than the savings from. Uh, the reduced uh, filing fees at the patent office. In general, I would say that to prepare a robust provisional or a utility application is gonna be on the order of $5,000 at a real minimum for, for our firm and our billing rates as, as being kind of, the, I think the largest uh, patent boutique uh, in the United States. 
our billing rates are on the high end, I would say, but comparable with any other large uh, international law firm. Uh, so at our billing rates, I would say between five and $20,000, $25,000 to prepare an application. I have worked on much larger applications that get to be hundreds of pages long, and those can cost $50,000, $100,000, but most of our clients are not willing to spend that. And so I think the bulk of our filings are going to be in that five dollars to $25,000 range. Then that is the filing. Then mm -hmm. you wait mm -hmm. uh, for usually a year or more, and you get the first office action from the patent office. It's written by an examiner who reviews the application and finds references, other patents, journal articles, and so on, that he or she believes uh, render your claims uh, either anticipated, in other words, they lack novelty, or that they're somehow obvious if you piece together different references. And then our job is to analyze the office action and those references to figure out whether the examiner has it right. Do we have to amend our application, the claims in a way that kind of narrows the scope because we inadvertently started too broadly. And so we're, we're covering some of the information that was already available to the public. Um, and there are other aspects that we address, but those kinds of responses to the office action will also be in, in a range of 2,500 at kind of a minimum to five, 10, $15,000, it really can vary. Some office actions are two or three pages long. Some are 40 or 50 pages long and cite a dozen references. And so it's really a question of how much work is involved. And you may have two or three or more back and forths with the examiner over years. Mm -hmm. And it really depends on the examiner. I, I can give you one example where I had a client, which was generally, I would consider them a startup. Uh, and we had a very tough examiner. We had six office actions and then we had to appeal the case. And so that entire process took over $100,000 over six years or so. Then for the same invention, a tiny improvement in timing of administration went to a different examiner. And I had told the client, well, this is just a tiny innovation over and above your earlier work, which was already in the prior art, it was in the public domain because of the first patent, uh, the, the different examiner gave us a, a notice of allowance first time with no office action at all. So that oh, whole wow. process uh, costs just a few thousand dollars. So it is so dependent on the examiner. Uh, and, and so that's why we give these very broad ranges of what it might cost to get a patent. And in terms of timing, um, there there is one process uh, where you can uh, accelerate examination, where the patent office does try to get the first office action to you within three to six months of filing, and then try to come to some sort of a conclusion within a year, and that's called a track one application. And that you just you just pay a fee; it's uh, two thousand uh, dollars generally, and uh, that gets you the exped expedited prosecution. There are also petitions that one can file under certain categories uh, to try to accelerate examination. But in my experience, it often takes quite a while for the patent office to act on the petition. And so it may not accelerate. The, the track one costs extra money, but you're not spending attorney time. And so it, it's, I, I think, Track one is, is the best and fastest way to go. There are other ways to accelerate prosecution as well, but I, I won't get into that here. But in general, I think it takes about three years um, to go through the process unless you hit one of these examiners where it, it takes five or six iterations. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was very like uh, insightful and detailed, but... Let's take a real life example. Let's say I'm a PhD student or I work in academia and throughout my lab, I found this 
uh, amazing idea or amazing technology that I just discovered and I want to patent it. Can you like give me a 30,000 view about the steps and what should I do? What should I like after like filing an LLC or should I find the file a patent first? Should I talk to the to academic institution first? Like what should I do? I just have an idea. What's next? Sure. Well, in most academic settings, I think you would have an employment agreement that says you have to assign your invention to your employer. And in that case, you have to go through the academic institution and, and many, if not most, have a technology transfer office and they will ask you to uh, write down in an invention disclosure form what you've come up with. They may have an internal review process and they may say, yes, we like this idea. We're going to fund that uh, filing. They may ask you, do you have any ideas about starting a company or do you have any contacts in industry that might be interested in taking an option to license the technology and so on. But typically, and, and I do work with academics, I have for my entire career, I kind of started my career on academics working with University of Massachusetts. And at the time it was Mass General Hospital, now part of Partners Healthcare. And we do an awful lot of filings for new innovations from academics. And that's the process. You go through the tech transfer office. They decide whether or not to uh, proceed. Uh, in some cases, if they don't proceed, they may give the rights back to you. And then the next step would be for the tech transfer office to get in touch with their outside patent council. And sometimes they'll file a provisional on their own just as kind of a stakeholder, the cover sheet provisional. And otherwise they go to their outside council to file the patent application. And then they may or may not have a, a close interaction with the inventors. Uh, generally, there's gonna be some sort of an interview between the attorneys and the inventors to get a good sense of what the application is going to be about. And then there's a few iterations back and forth we file the application and then you wait uh, a year to uh, sometimes even three years before you hear from the patent office at all. And then oh, wow. uh, we go back and forth with the examiner. In those situations, we also try to get input from uh, the technology transfer office to make sure they're still interested in proceeding and because they're paying our bills and with the inventors to get input on the references that the examiner has found and so on. So it, it's a long process and that's part of the reason why it gets to be quite expensive sometimes. And that's why a lot of academic uh, institutions will start with a provisional application. Mm -hmm. They then take the next year to shop around the idea to see if they can get a licensee. Um, Often, if they don't have a licensee yet, they'll file at least a U.S. utility application if they still think there's commercial merit. Um, other times, they will file uh, an international patent application, a patent cooperation treaty, or PCT, which gives you, uh, again, kind of a stake in the sand for, I think it's 156 countries. And again, hoping to get a licensee uh, to, to pay for the process because the costs that we've been talking about are only in the US. If you take that one patent and file it in let's say 15 countries around the world, in each country you have to pay annual fees to maintain the application or in some countries once the patent issues to maintain the patent, they're called annuities. And the general figure that we give is on the order to 300 to $500,000 to get the patent in 15 countries and to maintain it for 20 years through its lifetime. So it gets very expensive and most academics and most startups cannot afford all of that over yeah. the 20 year term. So they want to get some sort of a, a large commercial entity involved to, to pay for that. You mentioned yearly fees in foreign countries. Are, are there any similar fees in the US or? Uh, in the U.S., those fees are called maintenance fees. They're only applied once the patent issues, and mm -hmm. they come at three and a half, seven and a half, and eleven and a half years. Gotcha. Okay. Um, 
uh, I, I've heard previous meetings like you had, and I was really inspired by your style. You, you, you tell lots of stories. And now since we're talking about like academias and patents, like do you have any horror stories without mentioning names where things went wrong between the founder and the institution um, and things went sour? Sure. And thankfully it doesn't happen that often, but <laughs> I, I remember one case. Um, remember I said how an inventor needs to assign to the academic institution and we got involved after the institution had given rights back to the inventor. The inventor had started a company, was raising funds, and we were uh, then working on, on patent prosecution. And so he was paying that those fees through his startup. Uh, and that's usually the deal with, with the academics. The academics may keep some percentage um, and the startup then pays for the patent prosecution fees. And sometimes that causes trouble because the startup may run out of money. And then the institution wonders, well, should we continue the prosecution without that startup? But in this particular case, that, that really wasn't the issue. The issue was that once the startup really started gaining traction and getting some investors, the institution said, well, wait a minute, we, we gave the rights back to you, but we didn't give the rights back to the other two inventors. And so we still are a stakeholder in this very interesting startup you have. And the, the inventor looked to us and we tried to have a, a couple of meetings with the academic institution. And they just stood strong that they said, nope, we were very clear. And of course the problem was, it was very cryptic as to what they had returned and to whom. And uh, so the, Unfortunately, that startup had this cloud over ownership of the rights and they couldn't attract any more investors and they went under because of that reason. So oh, wow. one of the warnings I have for people in academics or in any setting is to make sure that a company has all of the patent rights and that has to be done by an assignment that is signed by each of the inventors to the, to the company, to the academic institution. And Time and again, we are involved in trying to figure out who owns the rights. And sometimes those rights go through multiple different entities and that, that can cause confusion. You also have to be sure that you have inventorship proper because if someone is not listed an inventor and they're not happy about it and, and it's not brought to our intention, um, that person can cause trouble down the road if there's ever litigation on the patent. They may say to the alleged infringer, oh, by the way, I think I'm an inventor. And if you pursue that, I will license my rights to you. And then the infringer in the litigation says, oh, wait a minute, we have rights to the patent because we have an assignment from someone who should have been listed as an inventor. So there are a lot of intricacies but assignments and inventorship and so on are, are important things to keep in mind. Gotcha. Yeah, this is like, this is very tricky. I think it's, it's, it's very scary to lots of founders and uh, uh, how do you take your idea from the lab to the market if you find the idea in a in institutional labs, but also with holding the right number, having the right number on the cap table uh, because like th this is what you're going to use eventually to bring money and sell shares to investors. And uh, yeah, it, it is very interesting. It is. And I think one use of patents is as a marketing tool and something yeah. that you can show to potential investors. And I know having worked for many years in, in the field with startups and VCs and so on, VCs are definitely going to look at your patent portfolio. Uh, they're, they're most interested in the managing team, but they will certainly take a look at the, the patents that, or at least patent applications that you have to protect uh, all the investment that they're about to make. And same with uh, corporations that are looking to acquire a startup. They, I think the corporations take an even deeper dive into the patent portfolio because 
it's it's the patent portfolio that really is a big driver in the valuation of the company. And we've mm-hmm. we've helped startups to explain their patent portfolio to companies that they're they're seeking to make a deal with. We've represented the larger company that is looking to acquire another company. And we go through and look for any possible problems with the patent portfolio, why it may not have the value that the patent owners think it does. And that's then used as leverage in negotiations for what the the, the proper valuation should be. Okay. So it sounds like obtaining a patent takes time, but also the we touched about how patents are important in market as marketing tool, but also obtaining FDA approval is very important uh, in getting traction and uh, especially like from VCs and corporations. So can startups protect their IP during the process of getting the FDA approval? Can those can a startup founder at the same time, protect is like uh, file an application to protect their IP, and at the same time, go through the FDA process. Absolutely, and they run in parallel. And in general, you're going to start with the patent process much sooner, because often startups don't have the kind of data that's required for FDA approval. But they they are separate uh, in many ways, and when examiners try to say, oh, well, you haven't done any clinical testing. The courts have come back and said, no, that's the job of the FDA. That's not the job of the USPTO. And so examiners uh, are looking just at the invention with respect to novelty, non-obviousness, utility, and so on. And it's, it's a separate job of the FDA to test for safety and efficacy and so on. Um, where they where they overlap, and and we actually have some people who are uh, at Fish and Richardson who are experts in this field of looking at that overlap, is that you can get a patent term extension for time used to obtain regulatory approval, and so once the patent issues, you have sixty days to file a petition to get this patent term extension or PTE. And as I mentioned earlier, the the end of the patent term is often where the most money is generated on the invention, especially in pharmaceuticals. And so these patent term extensions, which are up to five years, can be worth a tremendous amount of money. And so there the patent office looks at the time spent on regulatory approval and applies that as this patent term extension. And we, as I said, we have other people in the firm that are far more expert than I am in analyzing those kinds of overlap. Gotcha. So let's now switch gears and talk about like what is patentable and what is not. Like quickly, I'm just going to throw on you different ideas of different health tech startups or devices or supplements and tell me what can be patentable or not. Uh, medical devices, patentable uh, or not? Absolutely. Okay. And new drugs, patentable or not? I I would say if it's claimed properly, absolutely. Supplements. I I think the answer to your question will be yes for yeah. all all potential types of inventions. There are certain subject matters that. The, the patent law and the patent office have said, based on uh, case law over many, many years, mm-hmm. that are not patentable subject matter. So if you try to patent some uh, something that you just extracted from nature, so a natural product, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if I try to claim an orange because I found, oh, it has vitamin C in it, <laughs> so I, I want to claim an orange. That is not patentable subject matter because that's just a product of nature. Another category of non-patentable subject matter is natural phenomena. Um, And the last is abstract ideas, which are mathematical formulas like E equals MC squared or uh, mathematical algorithms or any kind of a mental process. 
So what's happened in the last 10 or more years is that the courts uh, and thus the patent office has to follow suit have really kind of dug in on this idea that, oh, many things are just products of nature. And so mm-hmm. a, a claim to an isolated nucleic acid, for example, uh, from a particular gene, which has potential uh, uses as a probe, as uh, a target, et cetera, uh, in terms of diagnostics, in terms of therapeutics, it was common practice for decades for people to claim an isolated nucleic acid. But the Supreme Court decided, no, that's a product of nature. That's no longer patentable. And so now we have to change the way in which we claim things. We're no longer claiming the isolated nucleic acid. We have to claim uses uh, of those or uh, an isolated nucleic acid that somehow has some sort of a heterologous sequence connected to it. So it's not something that would be found in nature or with a particular reporter group or something that makes it different uh, from what's found in nature. On the kind of software side, uh, the courts have really come down hard on claims to kind of pure software aspects. And Mm -hmm, again, mm -hmm. there are ways to claim things now that get around these kinds of limitations. But what's happening is that very broadly claimed software inventions are 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 being killed by the use of this uh, approach, uh, and that is something that an alleged infringer is going to bring up as, as kind of one of the first defenses to uh, an assertion of infringement of a software patent. They're going to say, "Oh, this is not patentable subject matter." Uh, so, and, and the courts find that as an easy way to just avoid the whole trial because they just, uh, on a motion for summary judgment, will just say, nope, the patent is dead because it's not patentable subject matter. We don't care if it's novel. We don't care if it would have been obvious. It's it's not patentable subject matter. So and, end of case. And uh, that, that's a real problem. And especially in the healthcare field where there are inventions that combine diagnostics and natural phenomenon or natural products or correlations with some sort of software. And Mm -hmm. so then you get hit from both sides. The patent examiner says, oh, this is an abstract idea and it's just a law of nature. So, but we have ways of amending the claims or filing the claims now that we know what the courts are looking for. um, to to try to get around those kinds of rejections. But it's it's been a big deal in the last 10 or so years. Wow, this is very interesting. So if you have a new product, have different parts, part of it can be patentable and part of it not, in simple words. Potentially. Potentially. And so one of the ways around on the software side is depending on how the company, uh, the inventor, want to use the software, you could you could turn to trade secrets mm-hmm. uh, as long as you have a way of preventing someone from re- reverse engineering the use of your your software. If you're selling the software, then you can't use it as a trade secret. But if you're using the software in-house in, in some sort of uh, diagnostic uh, system or something like that for testing, you, you might be able to protect that with, with trade secret. Gotcha. All right. So just to also quickly, let's say like I have a like a medical device company where like I can scan your face and through an AI algorithm, I can detect your cancers, for example, very broad. So this AI algorithm software can't be patentable. Am I right? Like, uh... Well, I, I would say that there were going to be issues, but I think yeah. when properly claimed, uh, we can certainly do that. And we work on those kinds of inventions. I, I do work with one client uh, where they have developed a very sophisticated systems biology model mm-hmm. for diagnosing certain disorders. And so it, it's a combination of machine learning, large language models, and when they're properly trained and you give the proper prompts, 
they can take input from uh, a patient. In this case, it's uh, a non-invasive, just imaging of the patient, and then can come up with either a, a diagnosis of whether the patient has some sort of condition, or uh, they can provide uh, an analysis of the types of medications that should be applied. Uh, they can be used for clinical testing, for example, uh, to get an idea of out of a number of different drugs, which one would be best for this patient. And so they involve these kinds of aspects of AI as a tool. And so you're not claiming uh, the, the AI itself, you're claiming the, the use of those types of tools in methods of diagnosing. And there too, a method of diagnosing has the patentable subject matter problem because if it's not properly claimed, uh, the examiner will say, oh, this is just a correlation to a natural phenomenon, right? You're just diagnosing someone as having cancer because you found cancer cells and that's the cancer cells are just a natural phenomenon. Gotcha. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's tricky, but it can be done. And we, we work for a lot of clients in kind of the bioinformatics and uh, AI space, if you will. But mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, another interesting thing is the question of whether the AI itself can be an inventor. And yeah, I followed that a little bit. Uh, there is this uh, Dr. Stephen Thaler who has been pushing this issue and the U.S. Patent Office has said, no, uh, the, the law is clear that an inventor must be a natural person. And so they say AI cannot be an inventor. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the U.S. Copyright Office has said an AI cannot be an author of a written work or a, paint, you know, a painting, an image. Uh, the UK uh, Supreme Court has said AI cannot be an inventor. I think Australia, the uh, highest court also said that they cannot be inve an inventor. But to me, that makes sense. Um, but I think that AI as used as a tool can be protected by patents and so on. Okay, that is very interesting topic it's very mind-blowing like just to go through through the intricacies of um this subject matter but like for the sake of time i'm gonna keep um, our flow and that brings me to the next question so you had a huge and lots of experience with startup founders and uh, innovation in health tech space uh, from from your experience what are the most common pitfalls that people make when they are going through, uh, through this process? Well, I, I've actually put out kind of do's and don'ts lists uh, for startups, for biotech startups and so on that people can find on, on my bio on the firm website. But in general, I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes is to not keep track of ownership of the rights. Mm -hmm. uh, the startup, wants to make sure that they have the rights assigned from the inventors, because if they just say, well, we're just a small company and we're all inventors, um, everything's fine. We don't have to assign to the company, but let's say there's a split and one or more inventors leaves disgruntled. Then they say, oh, I never assigned to the company. So I still have rights. So the company is supposed to be the owner of, of the technology. Mm -hmm. um, Another mistake is publishing uh, their invention or going to a trade show, um, going to some sort of uh, uh, place where they present their idea publicly. And as I mentioned, that could uh, cause a real problem with their foreign patent rights. Although there are some countries that have certain grace periods, but they're much more restricted than what I mentioned about the US where you have a one year grace period. Um, in, in terms of startups that come out of an academic setting, it's very important to make sure all of the rights are owned by first the university, and then uh, if the university licenses the rights, the startup should, should definitely be involved in that process. So they make sure that they're all aligned on who's gonna be licensed and so on. Um, there, there are just, 
many different scenarios that one can envision where where mistakes could be made. But I, I think those are are some of the basic ones. I mean, another one is just to think, well, the patent gives me the right to proceed and and to carry out my invention and actually commercialize it. Um, what they don't understand is that it's really separate, and they need to be aware of what other patents are out there that someone else may have that they might be infringing by starting to commercialize their invention. And that's called uh, whether or not they have freedom to operate or whether they have clearance. Uh, and that's a whole other kind of analysis that we can help people with. Also expensive, depending on how many other patents are out there. But mm -hmm. it's something that startups should start thinking about, not initially, because it's not an area that they should be spending money on, I, I feel, unless they are very well funded. But as they start figuring out the, the particular elements that will be involved in their commercial product, they should certainly take a look at whether they have freedom to operate. Because many inventions have multiple steps or multiple elements, and there could be patents out there on any one of those elements. Um, I'll give you an example of a company that we we represented some years ago. Uh, they were a very well-funded startup, uh, mm -hmm. but th they were making a machine that basically tests blood, and you put blood in at one end, and it plates it out uh, in a monolayer, and it images, it stains, all automatically. And so we we did a freedom to operate analysis for about 20 different aspects of that machine. And it took about a year and a half and probably cost upwards of $500,000. But they, their mission was to be acquired by a big multinational. And they also in that time space filed about 50 different patent applications on this machine. Again, I said they were very well funded, but their goal was to be acquired and they basically then put themselves on the auction block. And because we had done all of this work in preparation for that very event, they had five or six companies competing uh, for being able to acquire this company. And ultimately, all of the work that we had done when we met with the teams of patent attorneys from those different companies, they couldn't find any significant problems with the patent portfolio, or with the freedom to operate, because they would say, well, what about this patent? And we'd say, oh yeah, we looked at that last year and we don't infringe for this reason. Or what about this patent? Oh yeah, we looked at that patent and that patent's invalid, so it's not a problem for us. So they put a lot of effort into this, but then they were acquired for 250 million upfront, which seems like nothing these days, but this was about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, today, of course, it's always a billion dollars, $7 billion, right? But um, and, and milestones thereafter were also very lucrative for this startup. So if you have the money and you do the preparation, it's going to put you in a very good position when you're negotiating with some sort of large company in an acquisition process. Oh, this is mind blowing. Like right now, what I'm hearing is this company's product was the patent. They literally they invest in the patent and they sold a patent and that's it. Well, they, they had a product as well. They they had a yeah. working prototype and that also cost. They were spending a couple of million every month on getting this all going. So not what a typical startup can do, but they they did it the right way according to their level of funding. Oh, wow. And like also the level of complexity, like having you on the team made this startup very well protected. Exactly right. They also had a very good in-house patent counsel, though, who was the driving force of this kind of an approach, I have to say. Wow. This is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we touched a bit about the if freedom to operate, um, can you just quickly like define that? What what does that mean, um, and why it is important for startup companies to learn about it? Well, generally, it's a review of what patents might be out there 
that have claims that cover what you're planning to do. And as I said, an invention may have several aspects. And so you have to look at each of those aspects. You, you can't just say, well, we're okay with step one. So we don't care what happens with the rest. It doesn't work that way. Um, for example, there might be a new stent uh, and it, it may mm -hmm. have a certain design. It may have certain features and there might be patents on individual ones of those features. And if the claims of those patents are broad enough, it doesn't matter that there are other features as well. As long as they have that one feature, they might be infringing someone's claim. I had uh, one situation, for example, a, a spinoff uh, of a, a large corporation. They really wanted to focus on a particular aspect of telehealth. And so they knew before they really wanted to get started, they wanted to know, do they have freedom to operate in this particular aspect of telehealth? And we spent a couple of months looking at uh, the patents and we, we came up with, uh, there were about 20, 25 patents that might be relevant. And then as we kind of dug down with them, and this was an iterative process with the team, um, there were still 10 or 11 at the end of the day that they said, gosh, they look like they might be valid. It would cost millions and millions of dollars to try to get those patents knocked out in court. And I don't think we have a really good non-infringement argument, so we don't have freedom to operate. They decided not to proceed at all. They just closed the doors. Um, to the, the prior example, just to give you the scope there with the 20 different aspects, we looked at about 1,500 patents. Oh, my uh, God. No, 15,000 patents that we narrowed oh. down. Um, so that was a year and a half process. But uh, that's at one extreme. Uh, at the other extreme, we can do kind of a quick and dirty FTO uh, for a startup where we just take a quick look at what patents are out there. And then the, the company itself can kind of take a look at them initially and say, oh, we don't do that at all. And we give them some guidance so that they're doing some of the legwork and saving money that way. So you can do kind of a quick and dirty FTO for five to $10,000, but generally uh, a more significant one with a, a more detailed analysis, especially if there are patents that are close um, is going to be in in the tens of thousands to, to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. So what I'm hearing is like working early with you or with the patent attorney, like especially someone who is experienced like you, not only helps you to make money at the end uh, through your startup, but also helps you to save money if there is something similar out there. That's right. That uh, Absolutely. Because... Uh, we we also do sometimes patentability searches, right? Before you mm -hmm. file your patent application, you may do a quick search. And so many times we've seen inventors who think that their invention is the greatest thing ever. But then we do a quick search and we say, well, wait a minute. This was done already quite a while before you ever came out with your idea. They didn't know about it, but it's close yeah. enough that they might say, oh, well, we could better go back to the drawing board and maybe change our idea a little bit so that when we file our application, we have a stronger position. Uh, so a search does help upfront as well on kind of just looking at patentability so that you file a patent application that is not overly broad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I have an example in, in a thera therapeutic space where uh, they had a, a pretty good idea and they insisted on filing very broadly in one of these track one applications. Mm -hmm. And I had warned them or recommended to them that we should have a more tailored set of claims with a more narrow scope because that makes sense in a track one setting because you want to have something that the examiner starts with that the examiner thinks is reasonable in view of what's already known in, in the prior art. But they insisted on broad claims. And I said, fine. 
So what happens? We get a first office action that rejects them over prior art that we were aware of. And as a result of that rejection, they started having trouble getting more investors because the investors said, well, wait a minute, your, your patent application has been rejected because that's in the public domain. You can see that, you can access that on the patent office website. Um, we, we eventually did get the patent, but with the claims that I had suggested that we file from the, from the beginning. So uh, you wanna do that searching and you, you wanna have claims that are not too broad. And, and this is somewhat different uh, than when I started practicing, it was much more common to have very broad claims and then chisel away slowly during the back and forth with the patent examiner. I think nowadays it makes much more sense to, to go in with claims, especially in a track one procedure, but in general as well, because the patent laws have changed and you're just not entitled to claims that are as broad as uh, we used to be able to get maybe 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Gotcha. Um, we're almost at the end. So I just want to ask you, like, if you have any advice to uh, physician entrepreneurs or health tech founders uh, who are new to the world of patent, um, other than working with you, which I find it very interesting. <laughs> well, I, I think in general, it is important to, to be in touch with a patent counsel early on because they can provide guidance on what types of things might might be more patentable than others, might have an easier time getting through the patent office. And, and a, a patent counsel can serve as kind of a pseudo in-house patent attorney because most startups don't have a, a patent attorney. They might have a general counsel, if at all. Um, and I've often played the role of you know going to meet with the inventors on let's say a monthly or quarterly basis to help kind of brainstorm what things might be patentable, what things should we pursue, what things should we keep as trade secrets. Um, also to provide guidance on doing some initial searching, to provide guidance in the assignments and making sure that's all buttoned up. Um, if, if there's any kind of licensing down the road, uh, you, you don't want to do that on your own either because licensing is a whole nother field. I'm not a specialist, but certainly Fish and Richardson has numerous attorneys in our licensing group and I work with them all the time. Um, but there are just all these kind of legal intricacies that you, you want to have guidance on early so you don't make some of these mistakes uh, that we've been talking about. Gotcha. And for also to our listeners, you're going to find uh, links uh, for you can re re reach out uh, Peter through the links I'm going to leave in the comments below. Also uh, links to Fish and Richardson, also links to the do's and the don'ts uh, by Peter. Everything's going to be mentioned in the description below. So please check that out. And Peter, thank you so much. I appreciate you a lot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, happy to, to join your podcast and this, this was rather enjoyable and thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much.